Hello there, welcome to a brand new Arse Blog Arsecast right here on arseblog.com. Hope you're well. It's cold here tonight in Dublin. It's really fucking freezing, actually. We've had good weather. It's saying it's two, but it's like real feel of minus six. And the fire is downstairs and I'm upstairs and that's fine. But I might, just for this particular episode, eschew my usual high standards of ensuring that everything is absolutely tip-top professional, as good as it can be, doing retake after retake after retake to make sure that it's perfect for you because I'm fucking cold. And the sooner I can get downstairs, the better. Anyway, we're going to talk about stuff on this podcast today. We're going to talk about stuff and we're going to talk about things. So it's all in the mix. Obviously, the Liverpool game that took place on Wednesday night, we'll have to go uh, over that to some degree or another, uh, to quite a big degree. Who knows? I'm going to chat to Amy Lawrence about that and other things. That's coming up as well. Uh, What else? We'll look ahead to a game against Stoke. Wow, isn't that something? A brand new signing, Mohamed El Neni. Yes. He is signed. He is ours. We have bought another human being for cash. We went to FC Basel and we said, hey, you own that man, but we would like to own him instead. How much money would it cost for us to buy him from you? And they said it would cost about £7.4 million with add-ons and you may own this human being. And we said, okay, that seems a reasonable deal. So we paid them that money and we now own a person that we didn't own before. And that person is ours for as long as we want to own him or until such time as we deem him replaceable by another human that we own and we will sell him to another institution. I mean, is there anything, anything in this world as pure and beyond reproach as football's ability to buy and sell and trade human beings in order to win trophies. I mean, you know, I I don't think there is. Mankind has evolved over millions of years to reach the point where it's deemed acceptable to trade the life of another person in order to help you win a trophy that lots of people on the internet want you to win. Sport, gosh, it's so great, really is. So look, stuff and things I said we'd be talking about, that was a a stuff, and maybe we should talk about a thing, right? Aaron Ramsey scored against Liverpool. Good goal it was too. Can ask some questions about the rest of his performance, but a good goal. And yesterday, purely by coincidence... Alan Rickman died, the actor, great actor he was, Uh, but he died of cancer, aged 69. Cue the, look, Ramsey's curse strikes again. The curse of Aaron Ramsey strikes again. This, for me, this idea that when Aaron Ramsey scores, somebody famous dies, Ah, it's so fucking, it's shit, isn't it? It really is one of the worst things out there, along with the people who think that we care one jot about what Arsene Wenger is doing with his zip at any point during a match. I don't care. I never cared. I never will care. He could be, he could be using that zip to flog a talking zebra on the sideline for all I care. I don't care. Show me the match. I want to watch the football. I don't care about what he's doing with his coat. But every time he 
zips up his coat and has a slight bit of difficulty with it. There's the cameras. Look, there's Arsene Wenger again. Look at him. He's having some problems with his zip. Oh, isn't it funny? No, no, it's not. The same thing with this Ramsey death thing. Because, number one, obviously, it's complete nonsense. If Aaron Ramsey's goals had the power to kill celebrities, well, they, no, we'd be living in fucking Narnia or somewhere. But we're not. Even though, and I have asserted this on this podcast before, I become more and more convinced as I get older that the entire world is a computer simulation over which we have absolutely no control. And uh, there's some guy up there or a whole load of people just playing with the whole thing, like we're Sims or some shit. I'm, I'm telling you, but anyway, look. I'm just saying that Aaron Ramsey scoring and a person dying is a coincidence. There's no curse. There's no Ramsey gold curse. He does not have magic boots or magic powers. He does not instill in the ball as he as he guides it into the net. He doesn't, you know, just make a little spell in his head and go, kill a celebrity. You know, the thing is, he's a player who scores with relative frequency. And you know what happens every single day in the world, even to famous people? They die. Yeah. People die every single day. I suspect if you really wanted to, and I don't know why anybody would want to do this, but if you were to uh, look at celebrity deaths and then go back over, I mean, surely Messi, surely Messi, who scores every fucking day of the week, he must be responsible I, I say responsible in inverted commas, of course, because he's not responsible at all. But you could, I'm sure you could uh, find every messy goal and then look the next day and see who died. And there would be somebody, somebody in the world uh, of relative renown will have passed away. And you could say, Messi, you killed them because of your, you know, your curse. Same with Ronaldo, same with any player that scores relatively frequently. So this Ramsey death thing, it's not even a bizarre coincidence, is it? You know. Somebody has said it, and people go, oh, it must be a true thing, but it's not a true thing. It's a completely made-up thing, like dragons or unicorns or the Isle of Man. So I will hold no truck with any Ramsey death curse nonsense. And it's been a deathy week. It's been a bad week, of course. David Bowie. David Bowie. I'm still sad about David Bowie, I have to say. I know, you're probably tired of hearing about David Bowie, but I discovered something amazing. Really. On the 8th of January, David Bowie released an album called Black Star, and it's fucking great. It really is fucking excellent. Um, and the title track of that song, I was listening to it today as I was uh, heading into town to do some voiceovery stuff, and uh, I was listening to it, and there's uh, a bit in the, in the song where he goes, I'm not a black star, I'm not a gangster, I'm not something else. And then it hit me. There's like this bizarre Arsenal connection, right? I promise you promise you have a listen this is this is a snippet from the song I presume you got that but we'll play it one more time just to make sure David Bowie singing I'm not a flamster I'm not a fla- I'm not a flamster like Matthew Flamini how is this even possible these two worlds colliding and then it struck me they have this one thing in common. Neither of them have ever lost a game at the Emirates. That's right. Matthew Flamini has played 56 or 57 games at the Emirates and never lost one. And David Bowie, in his whole life, never lost 
a game at the Emirates. It's just, it's kind of incredible that in his legacy album, this last thing he left, there's this incredible Arsenal connection. David Bowie is not a flamster. So there you go. Um, there was one other thing I was going to talk about. Um, I have notes here, just sort of written down. And the first thing I have is Ramsey, and then I have Zip. That's good. And then I have Man of the Match written down. I was going to talk a little bit about how pointless Man of the Match awards are, uh, but I don't particularly want to do that. I might save it for another day. Who knows? And then there's a word written here, which is spelled P-R-U-P, prop, prop. And I don't know what it means. I don't know what I was going to talk about. I don't know if that's an acronym. I don't know if it's a misspelled word. Do you know what I did earlier? I watched the video of the Mohamed Elneny interview. It said his first interview was on uh, Arsenal player. So I said, oh, yeah, I was doing things. And I said, oh, I'll, I'll watch that. And I put it on and I was flicking around. I was doing some bits of writing or something. I can't remember. What it was. And then I got to the end of it and I realized I just listened to two and a half minutes of Arabic, I assume, that I didn't understand a single, single word of. Like, it didn't occur to me until the end. I was sitting there listening away. I don't know what I was thinking, but I didn't understand a single word. So then I had to go back and read the subtitles and all that kind of stuff. And I was kind of sorry I did. In the end, there wasn't that much that was very interesting in it. I don't know what's going on in my head today. So look, it, it's cold. Still cold. Yeah, just checking. My hands are freezing. Uh, okay, uh, I think we should uh, move on. And let's uh, talk about Liverpool. Let's talk about uh, Olivier Giroud. Let's talk about the signing of Mohamed El Neni. And let's welcome back to the show our good friend Amy Lawrence. Hi, Amy. Hello. Hello. A 3 3 draw. Let's start there. 3 3 draw at Anfield. Feels kind of familiar in a way because it was uh, almost a carbon copy of what happened last season in that Liverpool scored very late when Arsenal looked like they were on the verge of winning the game. Yeah, maybe, but. I'm not sure how much the two games actually bear that that much relation to one another. Sure. Um, I think that the, the 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 state of being that both teams find themselves in right now compared to last season is a little bit different. The the state of the teams is a, are a little bit different. And I know what you're saying about that last you know that late goal, and it's not just last season, is it? it it's quite a lot of them over the last few years. Um, feels a little bit familiar, but uh, I mean, it was. In, if you can detach yourself from sort of the morning after the night before, it was just a bit of a freakish game, really. Um, I mean, I don't know why that happens quite so often up there, but or, or to us in general, we seem to have a lot of freaky games. Yeah, maybe. Um, I think this was a particularly freaky one. <laughs> no. Yeah, I'd agree. It was it was bizarre. The first 25 minutes were really like, oh, shit, look, we're, uh, we, they scored, and you think, oh, God, this is going to be bad. And then we scored, and they score again, and then we score again. You know, it was interesting, Arsene Wenger talking after the game, he said, from his point of view, there were more neg- or more positives than negatives, and I guess he's got to say that ahead of a trip to, to Stoke. But there's something to that as well, in the sense that, that Arsenal did come from behind. I totally agree with him. Um, I think that there were moments in the game where the prospect of not far off another Southampton, I mean, particularly when I think the second Firmino goal goes in and you think Arsenal have started very poorly, gone behind and somehow got themselves a goal out of nothing, got back into it. And then Firmino, who hasn't found goals that easy to come by since his move to England, scores a worldie and mm. help thinking of the uh, the Southampton player. Um, 
who scored uh, scored that incredible goal uh, on his debut, and and you know we all we all remember his any, name. Don't like we? that is his life, is he? So, yeah. um, and actually, I think that the mental fortitude um, and resilience, bearing in mind Giroud had to have a staple in his head, uh, bearing in mind obviously we know Liverpool were also without play, uh, important players, but. I still can't believe that Arsenal have gone through this sequence um, of a lot of games with, with, without Coquelin, without Alexis Sanchez, without Santi Cazorla, you know, such key components in, in the team. And, you know, for the, for the large part, really, you know, getting through it unscathed has oh, um, mm. been quite amazing. But it felt to me like there was always some accidents probably waiting to happen if you are a long period without especially Coquelin. Uh, I think yesterday towards the end was probably one of the examples of um, of that being costly. Where I, I, I think if Coquelin or a player of that ilk is still on the pitch, it can make a difference. And again, just a broad, more broadly looking at, at the substitutes bench, um, the three players came on who came on, and you know everyone was knackered, so there needed to be, be changes. And he saw a few people on on Twitter or, or, or criticising the manager for making substitutions and so on. But, you know, I could see that the, 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 the requirement for fresh legs there. Yeah. Um, but it's just, it, it was difficult that the three players who came on for completely different reasons um, probably weren't quite of the uh, of the uh, right standard at this moment in time to do the job that you want them to do. Um, and Arteta coming on, it wasn't, was d- not ideal. Would you have gone for Chambers that. instead, maybe? I'd, I'd have gone for Gabrielle, actually. Mm, a lot of people said that, all right. Oxley Chamberlain is just having such a hard time at the moment. It's it's diff- you can see why their manager's finding it difficult to, to trust him. And uh, Kieran Gibbs, although he's coming on and doing doing his best, it's it's when he's got those ch- he's effectively playing in that advanced left hand position, uh, attacking position, and and when the chances come to try and break and and get a fourth goal maybe or cause some damage. It's not, you know, it's not something that is is his forte, is it? So, no. I think that you felt that Arsenal, Arsenal were really feeling the lack of being able to make quality changes, and that's where I think, you know, going away to Stoke on um, on the weekend, it, 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 it's a it's a rice, a tough old challenge yeah. for obvious reasons, and the fact that the possibility of El Neni coming in and making his debut. Um, is really interesting. Mm. The possibility of Alexis Sanchez coming back in and, and adding what he adds um, would be fantastic. And even someone like Rosicki, who's back in training and been very sharp by all accounts, you know, you can you can imagine those kind of you know having those kind of players available gives you much more breadth, and much more options. Mm. Do you think um, it's yeah? I mean, might be needed. Yeah, I was just going to sort of touch on on the point you made earlier about the midfield. Um, and obviously El Nenny aside, we might touch on that in a couple of moments' time. But um, the, the Flamini-Ramsey partnership just doesn't seem to have developed really in any significant way since they've been put together. I mean, seven games, we've won five, we've drawn one, we've lost one. So, you know, it hasn't been, as you said, a complete disaster being without Coquelin and Cazorla. But maybe over the course of a number of games, you would expect two players fairly experienced players to be able to find a way of working well together but as time goes on it doesn't seem like that's happening look I think if they've got time 
uh, and space, which obviously you don't have that much of generally in Premier League, particularly when a team like uh, Klopp Liverpool wants to press you. That's when you're going to see, if you like, the, the real Achilles heels of those kinds of players and their combination being exposed. Flamini has been a really useful guy to, to have around, obviously, because apart from anything else this season, once Cochrane was out, you, you were really scratching your head to know what to do. Um, and those goals against Tottenham in the League Cup will always mean that his, his contribution this season is, is highly valued. But it's not really the scenario you want. And that's why when Arsene Wenger didn't address bringing in another defensive midfield player in the summer, you just felt that it was a it was it was it was an elephant in the room that it was something that was going to happen at some point. Um, Ramsey is never going to be a player who sits with great discipline and uh, intercepts and makes loads of tackles and is re- resilient and robust. That's just not his strength. Um, so it's about finding a way of working uh, without Coquelin. And I think uh, I'm I'm really intrigued by El El Nenny. I can't pretend I've watched him loads, but uh, from what what everybody's saying, he's interestingly he sounds in some ways not a million miles away from from what Ramsey provides because I think his huge attribute is this incredible capacity to run and run and run. He has uh, a, a smashing engine, um, <laughs> as they say, and. Uh, that's going to be obviously tremendously handy. I think he's slightly more defensively inclined than uh, than Ramsey, but I don't think he's an authentic, tough guy. DM. Sort of, you know, wall-like uh, man who's going to be going around crunching into tackles wherever he can find an opponent worth crunching into. I'm not sure that's his game. I think he's got a little bit more um, technical ability. I, some people are suggesting he's a bit more Gilberto-like a bit more about the interception and being in the right positions uh, than actually wandering around with a great physical presence. So, you know, what I would, I would think that the idea, certainly if possible, uh, uh, and I think the feeling is he's arrived in good shape. I mean, it's an incredible thing to think that he might make his debut at a, at a ground and an atmosphere and a situation as usually tricky as... Stoke City at the Britannia. That's going to be a, an eye-opener for him. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I think that Arsene Wenger will be really tempted to, to, to give him that chance um, to show what he can do. But he's got to gel straight away with Ramsey. They've got to somehow click and find an understanding of who goes and who sits. Um, and that's got to be something that, in a big game, Wenger hopes will happen naturally and quickly. Mm. That, that would be very interesting, wouldn't it, if he brought in a player like El Nenny, who's only arrived, only been uh, announced uh, on Thursday, and to throw him in against Stoke away from home. I mean, that really would be a, a baptism of fire. But if he were to give him that chance, I guess it would be... Um, we could read something into what the manager thinks this player is capable of. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, look, you know, you'd be surprised. There are times at a training ground when, a, a, you know, a player turns up and in the first training session, other players check them out and think, oh, OK. I mean, it, it, it can be that quick. It isn't always. Sometimes, as you know, a new player arrives and is more of a slow burner and really needs that time to understand what's going on around him, to integrate fully into the way the team plays. And other times it's completely instinctive. You know, they can figure it out in a training session or two and, and begin to get those those vibes. I, I think these next couple of days at London Coney, what's going on, um, 
you know, over Friday and Saturday preparing for, for possibly the game on Sunday is going to be really interesting because my suspicion is that it's, it's, it's a big um, question that Arsenal has to answer. Do I trust this slightly dysfunctional midfield of Flamini and Ramsey to go up to Stoke and compete enough and not get overrun and be able to protect the back four? Mm. Uh, at a ground like that with the intensity that that we would expect Arsenal to to be up against. If he thinks that that Firmini can cope and it's two games in relatively quick succession, um, you know, because stamina-wise, Firmini doesn't really have the stamina that he used to have. Um, I think it's quite a challenge sometimes for him to do the full 90 minutes at full pace. You can see him feeling it towards the end of matches. And to do two games in a week is even more of a uh, expectation on that front. So we'll see. He might mm-hmm. need. He, it's going to be experience versus a gamble. Is the question for for Arsene Wenger to you know to see mm. which way he feels like going? I mean, isn't there some sense that he's got to change things around a little bit anyway? It feels like a team that needs some freshness added to it, something a little bit different. Whether that's El Neni or or Alexis coming back, but also. When you go away to Stoke, and Stoke have been playing um, some very good football and have had some great results uh, this season, there is a need for us to address the issue, which is in our last two away Premier League games, Arsenal have conceded seven goals. So there is a real need to address that issue in the very short term. So maybe that's something that he's looking at, yeah. The point is, if you're trying to address that issue, is your problem your back four or back five, including the goalkeeper? Or is your problem what's going on in front of that to help that back four to um, better manage when they're, you know, under the, uh, when they're under attack, so to speak. I think most people would look at a back four of Czech, Bellerin, Koscielny, Mertesacker and Monreal and be pretty, be pretty pleased and feel pretty, that's pretty dependable. Yes, Mertesacker has his critics um, when he's facing speedy players. And yes, Koscielny occasionally has, you know, has kind of mad moments that you don't expect. But on the whole, that back five has been really terrific for pretty much the in- entire of the last calendar year, bar- barring the odd blip. Mm. Um, so therefore... By implication, if this team has gone away from home and conceded seven goals in two away matches in the Premier League, maybe the problem is the protection that it's getting. That's where we we go back to how can Arsenal, with the resources it currently has, best protect in midfield when when needed during a game. Yeah. Yes, everybody knows, and there were times yesterday. I mean, I'm focused on the on the the, the, the worst bit, worst bits, but there were times in the. Liverpool Arsenal game going forward, where the little triangles and the passing moves were, were sensational. So going forward, uh, um, Arsenal still have a, a load going for them. Yeah, I mean, isn't it also true that you know, in order to really be effective as uh, an attacking force, and I think we've seen Arsenal over the last uh, couple of Premier League games haven't really clicked from from that point of view. Um, I mean, Giroud will will. T- come to him in a moment but but just in general in terms of the overall performance they haven't really clicked the way they have done earlier in the season and perhaps that as well is down because it, it, the the link between the back four and the uh, attacking end of the pitch is the midfield which isn't quite as functional as it might be 
Yeah, and also I think you have to add, you know, obviously the focus on, on, on Ramsey and Firmini, but you have to add um, Theo Walcott and Joel Campbell into this conversation because they're also key players in terms of they're expected to provide at both ends of the pitch. They're okay. expected to get back and help out and expected to get forward and do damage. And mentioning those two players is interesting only because Joel Campbell was excellent uh, in doing both elements of his job yesterday. Theo Walcott, not quite so excellent. Yeah. I mean... It, so that might be another thing that, that's part of the, the decision-making ahead of Stoke. It is. I mean, if, if Alexis comes back... Um, he's got to choose between Campbell and Walcott. When you look at the way Campbell has been playing and you look at the way Walcott has been playing, to me, there's only the, the choice is obvious. Are you surprised at how well Joel Campbell has done, particularly over the last four weeks or so, that he, he started to feel really part of this team and, and the performances have reflected that? I think he's been a complete bonus in a not dissimilar way to um, Coquelin and Bellerin emerging uh, during the season last season and sort of falling into Arsene's lap a bit by accident. Um, it seems like, I mean, Joel Campbell, I think if everybody's fit, if Welbeck's fit and Welsh is fit and, uh, every, and Alexis is fit and everybody's fit and Santi's fit, it was hard to see how much game time he was maybe going to get mm. in, uh, in this season. Um, and it looked almost more like it was going to be a, get some league cup games in and, probably FA Cup and sort of see what happens really. But because of the situation um, with all the injuries in specific departments of the, of the pitch, he's had his chance and he's taken it. But what is really impressive, uh, I think, is he was a guy who obviously, I mean, I'm trying to imagine, imagine being Joel Campbell, if that's not too much of a stretch. Okay. <laughs> you know, he's from Costa Rica, he's playing local football um, at the main club in his home country getting caps and, you know, as a, as a young boy, really. And suddenly Dick Law arrives and spends a week in Costa Rica chasing you when he had apparently nothing better to do one summer <laughs> and signs you for Arsenal. And then it becomes apparent that you can't actually go to Arsenal because of the work permit situation. He goes off on loan to several different countries, uh, several different clubs, it's a, a really long time until he actually feels like he's part of Arsenal. It must have been quite strange for him. And actually, to be a young kid and be going off to all these different places, he probably felt quite rootless. I mean, it's a difficult one to keep your um, motivation, uh, a sense of where your career's going, how much effort are you putting into the clubs where you're at. You, don't, you probably didn't really know what was going on a lot, a lot of the time mm. or how you know what his long-term scenario was going to be. And then had the World Cup in Brazil where he did really, really well. And even then, I think it was probably borderline what was going to happen to him. And, and Arsenal decided to bring him back to Arsenal, Arsenal uh, at, at, at that point. But it wasn't easy for him to make any kind of breakthrough. And I think a lot of people probably thought he might be moving on last summer. And uh, to get this chance, I think he needed to show attitude as much of ability to really get this chance and that's what's been very impressive because that was probably the question mark everybody knew he was quite gifted but it was whether he had the attitude to go with it was the question mark and he's he seems to be delivering big time on that so mm. really deserves credit 
but he's delivering also in terms of uh, end product and uh, goals and assists and oh. his involvement in the build-up play. Like, I mean, if you're talking about showing attitude, obviously he's got to work hard. He's got to uh, work hard in training. His defensive um, mindset is fantastic. I think, you know, when you mention him in terms of Walcott, you know, th- there's a lesson there for a guy who's been in the team for 10 years or ho- however long it is uh, that Theo's been in the team. Um, but, you know, he does have to uh, match that running around and hard work with actual uh, skill and ability. And he's done that with assists and he, he's done it with goals. Um, do you sense in, in some way, I, I mentioned this on the blog during the week, that perhaps the, the, there's more, the manager now is more inclined to to look at somebody like Joel Campbell and look at what they've done and be prepared to to give them a chance in a certain way. Because, you know, it's one of the vagaries of management, I guess. Uh, Coquelin and, and Campbell are two really great examples of how even somebody like Arsene Wenger, who admitted that he didn't, he couldn't see Coquelin making that kind of breakthrough and didn't really see Campbell making that kind of breakthrough either. Um, you know, it's it's out of their hands to a certain extent. They are uh, masters of, uh, of of the fortunes of the game in a certain way. So he seems to be a bit more open to that um, maybe in these later years of his career. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think he's always been someone who likes to give people a try. Um, when but, opportunities present themselves and he likes to challenge them and give them different things to do and I mean you can go right back to you know the am- amount of players in the beginning of his time at Arsenal where he changed their position and mm. sometimes people didn't want to change their position you know and you want a, a player like Lauren for example who came as a as a right midfield player and didn't want to play right back at all and I think you know they had really big disagreements about about what to do Freddie Jungberg when he first came wanted to play number 10. He had Dennis Bergkamp in the team. Mm. <laughs> He'd been playing number 10 all his life. And Arsenal said, can you play wide? And he was like, well, I don't really want to do this. And after a year, I think, had very serious second thoughts about whether this was where he wanted to be. You know, the management and getting the right, get, your vision of a player and them actually delivering that vision is can quite often be two totally different things. And one of the jobs of a great manager sometimes is to convince a player to really express themselves what they can do when they get a chance, but also to sometimes do things they don't expect of themselves. Mm. Mm. I just think, you know, when he's, he, he could easily at the start of this season, despite how well Bellerin did last season, have, have reverted to Debussy because Debussy was the experienced option. I think we've seen that in the past where perhaps young players who have done reasonably well have, have sort of found themselves, um, I won't say marginalised, but the manager has erred on on the side of experience. And um, I think it's really interesting the way Campbell has developed. And I'll hold my hands up and admit I didn't think it was going to happen because uh, because of the, the circumstances that he found himself in. But, you know, Arsenal's, Arsenal's injury crisis um, is terrible for most people, but great for some of the members of the squad, which is um, something... <laughs> but look, let's let's touch on uh, Olivier Giroud. Uh, two really fantastic goals against Liverpool on Wednesday night. Um, is he filling the requirement, um, this desire that people have to see a world-class striker at Arsenal? Is he doing as much as someone like Benzema could have done, for example? Hard to say. A bit, a bit too hypothetical for me, that. Okay, um, But <laughs> just to, to imagine what Benzema might have done if he had assigned them. I mean, he's got all sorts of other stuff going on anyway that mm. would have ruled him out of a bit of a bit of a few matches one would have imagined anyway this season. But um, I, I, I think one of the things that 
from day one, Arsenal has loved about Giroud is, I mean, you know, the the good old mental strength cliche, but uh, Arsenal sees sees that quality in him. And, and actually, in a way, it's quite bizarre because when you think about the kind of Mark One Giroud when he first arrived at the club, you know, he really with this great big, you know, humongous hulk of a bloke did used to go down and as if he'd been. Uh, extremely badly damaged quite often rolling around and you know <laughs> looking like he was in terrible pain with his waving a hand oh help help you know it's a disaster and that was quite a common thing and you did you did find yourself sometimes looking at him thinking god man know your own strength you know like mm. look at you like it was as if he didn't know his own physical strength somehow and yet from the psychological point of view Arsene Wenger has been like a scratch record for really a long time about Giroud talking about about how strong he is mentally I mean remember that nightmare against Monaco which was actually such an excruciating thing to witness where you're watching a big player on a big stage in a game that's important to him you know he knows the whole crowd back home in France is watching against French opposition and it was a it was an absolute calamity um and a lot of players might have found that really quite difficult to you know to to respond to but He's one thing. If you look at a lot of his career, he has been very good at is, you know, getting up when he's been knocked down, so to speak, um, and showing that he's better than some people think he is. And actually, if you think of Giroud at his uh, the performances that are where he's looked almost unplayable at times this, this season, such as last night um, against Liverpool, such as um, uh, Olympiacos. The, the Olympiacos game. When you compare that to sort of first season at Arsenal, Giroud, it that is a different player, mm. and because Arsenal supporters have obviously been watching him every week for several years now, it's a bit like watching a child grow. Um, when someone who doesn't see them very often comes over and goes, "Oh my God, look at your look at your child! They're suddenly done this and they look like that, and everything's so different." But if you're seeing them every day, you don't notice those changes so much. Mm. So probably Arsenal fans, in some ways, the worst jo- worst judges of the evolution of Olivier Giroud. Because yeah. actually, if you probably sat down and watched a video of, of a game, a random game from his first season, and compared that to some of what he's capable of this season, and he's doing it more consistently, I think um, the improvement is is probably there for all to see. Yeah, the goals are I going in. The the, the 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 issue of like a bit like we've just talked at length about Coquelin, you know, there were certain positions in the team where if you lose a player for a long time, it's a real concern. Mm. Coquelin was an obvious one and Giroud to an extent, which is, was an obvious one, which is why there was such a, a call, not just because people wanted an improvement on Giroud, but because people wanted a genuine alternative as well. You know, if, if something dreadful happens to Giroud in the next match and he's out for ages, what's, what are Arsenal going to do? I don't have any real answer to that. Exactly. Uh, Theo Walcott, I guess. Joel Campbell. What, a centre-forward? Mm. I mean, I wouldn't. it wouldn't be you know, my first choice, obviously, but it, it, that's pretty no, much where things, we are. I mean, there's Welbeck. Alexis can play there. Theo Walcott can play there. You, you might try Joel Campbell there. Danny Welbeck might be back eventually. But essentially, the way Arsenal now play it's quite hard to imagine them playing over a long period without Giroud and getting away with it. Is it interesting? Yeah. It's quite hard to imagine 
well, it has been quite hard to imagine Arsenal playing a long period without Coquelin and getting away with it and not it not costing at some points. Is that not a testament as well to what he's done in the sense that um, it was a criticism for a long time of, well, Arsenal play with Giroud and this is, the team is too too focused on the way that he plays. So Arsene Wenger this season um, decided to mix it up a bit and use Theo Walcott there, and it's, it worked a couple of times. But mm. you know, by the by, by yeah, the level really of his by the level of his performances, though, Giroud has, has has sort of reclaimed that position. You're right. Right, that's a good point. Totally agree with you because there mm. was definitely a point earlier on in the season where I, I, you know you, you had to wonder whether Theo looked like the better option. There were games where I mean I think it was the Leicester game when. Uh, Theo started up front and his combination play with Alexis and Ozil. And there was that speed and the, and the pre- precision of the passing and the, and the mixture of those elements was really exciting. Maybe all these things are going to come into play and all be need- needed between now and the end of the season. But that's, um, you know, that's a game down to trying to get players back. It's a nice position. That, and, and just reverting back to, to who, you know, what, what, what I said earlier about who came on as substitutes yesterday and, and the impact that you were requiring from them. If Walcott doesn't start the game because Giroud starts up front and Alexis is back, for example, then in, if if instead of Oxlade-Chamberlain or Gibbs coming on and maybe struggling a bit, that's Theo Walcott coming on and trying to make an impact on the game in the last 15 minutes and stretch a, you know, a, a, an opposition who are going forward and maybe leaving spaces at the back. Perhaps that's a completely different situation. Mm. You'd certainly fancy your chances more of getting a goal if you needed one. Uh, with Walcott coming off the bench. Anyway, look, um, let's hope, uh, keep fingers crossed for Giroud anyway, and um, uh, we will catch up with you again soon. Amy, thanks as always. Um, Goodly afternoon, isn't that what I'm supposed to say? (laughs) That'll do it. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you, as always, to Amy. You can find her on Twitter at AmyLawrence71. That is at AmyLawrence71. And, of course, in The Guardian and The Observer. Going to very quickly look ahead to the game against Stoke on Sunday. Sunday afternoon, 4 o'clock kickoff. That's all that's left to talk about, really, because we covered everything with Amy. We did the El Nenny thing. We did Campbell. We did Giroud. We did midfield. We did we did it all. So uh, we, we've only got to look ahead. That's all that's left for me to do here. So I'm going to do that. That's what I was trying to do before I interrupted myself. We don't have any team news yet. Because, of course, we played on Wednesday evening. It's now Thursday evening when I'm recording this. And uh, as yet, we haven't heard anything from the manager. And I don't suspect we will until we get the press conference tomorrow, you see. And that way he'll have had a little bit of time to assess the players who played on Wednesday and, and make some decisions about the team. Because it feels, as we were saying to Amy, feels like it just needs, a, you know, just something to give it a spark, something to, to reignite it. And maybe that something will come from new signing Mohamed Elneny. Imagine that was his debut in English football. Do you remember that great story about Robert Pires in his first season? And the first game of that season was against Sunderland, away from home. And Arsene Wenger said to him, look, today I'm going to put you on the bench and you can see how they play football in England. Pires says after about 25 minutes, fucking hell, is it always like that? He said he wanted to go back to France. But of course he adapted and became a, a fantastic player for us. So Mohamed Elneny could get his debut away from home against Stoke. Now, he wouldn't be the first Arsenal player in recent years to make his debut against Stoke. If you remember correctly, and if I remember correctly, and I hope I am now, no going back on it from here. I'm just going to have to plough on. 
I think Nacho Monreal made his debut against Stoke in January 2013. It might have been in February 2013 because the transfer window had just closed and he signed on, on the deadline day, didn't he? So it might have been into the next month. But anyway, it was a game against Stoke. I think we won it with a really weird Podolski goal. Could have been a deflection, a free kick or something that deflected in under the wall. But that was his uh, baptism of fire in the Premier League against Stoke. He had to play against, you know, a much more physical Stoke side than this one appears to be. But of course, the atmosphere at the Britannia Stadium, you know, Arsenal player gets strangled, you know, is passed out unconscious on the floor, foaming at the mouth. The referee, of course, hasn't seen anything. He just he just plays on. Our guy is lying there, starts to spasm slightly. You know, the oxygen has been cut off for, for so long that there's a risk that he could suffer serious serious brain damage, and the Stoke fans are singing, same old Arsenal, always cheating. You know how it goes. You know, that's the way it is at their place, and that's the way it will always be at their place. Uh, but they are a bit more football this year than they have been. They brought in some good players and are playing quite well, but there's still that element, isn't there, that physical element to their game. Even uh, the, the guy up front, Arnautovic, the Lidl Ibrahimovic, you know, he's a good player, but of course he uh, he rather snidely injured Matthew Debushi last season. That was an injury which had a huge impact on, on Debushi's career when you think about it. You know, he'd just come back from injury, he was just getting back into the side, and then, you know, he gets injured again because some wanker pushed him while he was up in the air, and now, you know, where is he? We don't know where he is. He wasn't on the bench even against Liverpool. There's talk about him going on loan somewhere. But look, it's not a happy situation for Debussy. And that was down to Arnautovic. Timing of that injury was, was just really bad for him. But perhaps, you know, there's something to the, the fact that they're playing a bit more football. They're a little more expansive. Maybe we have to worry about them a bit more from an attacking point of view. But maybe, maybe... They, they might leave some space for us to uh, attack into. So you just don't know, but maybe with Elneny in there, maybe with Alexis back in the side, Joel Campbell playing really well, Olivier Giroud scoring, you know, the midfield issue might be might be solved by adding a, a different player in there. Who knows? Maybe it'll be worse. We just don't know, but it might be worth trying. That's all I'm saying. Uh, but it would be good to go there and win. I think it would... Uh, would help us overcome a little psychological issue that we we have at that stadium and with that particular team. And, of course, when you come out of uh, uh, two away fixtures and your next game is at home against Chelsea, you really want to be carrying some kind of momentum into that one because, of course, the Chelsea players are are interested in playing football again now that Mourinho's gone. So it's going to be a difficult game against them. So, look, let's keep fingers crossed that we can do what we need to do against Stoke. I have a, I have a feeling. I don't very often have feelings about games. I have a feeling we're going to win this one. So, um, fingers crossed, and uh, we can discuss that on the Arscast Extra on Monday. Either what a great feeling that was, or what a twat I am for actually saying it out loud. Uh, I thought we might win. But hey, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. In the meantime, have yourselves a great weekend. Catch you on the Arscast Extra, and of course, on next week's Arscast. Until then, cheers, bye-bye.
zips all the time. The Zip Show on WZIP. Hello and welcome to Zippity Dooda, the world's foremost radio talk show about zips. I'm your host, John. Joining me in studio this evening, we have world-renowned zip experts, Trevor, hello, hello, and Neil, hello to you, Neil, hello. Many of our listeners have written in to say that Trevor and Neil sound very much alike. Well, that's because they're identical twins who grew up with a real love of zips and the world of zips. Trevor, if I could ask you first, what was it about zips that got you excited first? Well, I don't really know, to be honest. All I know is that I found zips very, very useful for keeping my winkle inside my pants because I had a pathological fear of my winkle coming out in like the middle of school or on the bus or something like that. But when you've got a zip, that just simply can't happen Unless you're a careless person and you don't do up the zip. What a fascinating tale that was. Thank you, Trevor. Neil, of course, there are many different kinds of zip. Perhaps you could tell us, just very briefly, what might be your top four or five kinds of zip. Oh, my goodness, talk about putting me on the spot right there. Um, I suppose I would have to say in no particular order because every week my favourite zip tends to change depending on the weather or my mood. But you've got to look at metal zippers, which are standard in many pants and jeans all around the world. And we have invisible zippers. Now, they're not actually invisible, they're just slightly hidden away by perhaps a fold of cloth. Because if it was really invisible, then there would be a fantastic technological breakthrough that we could make a thing invisible. But we can't do that yet. I also like open-ended zippers. You know the kind that you have to have a box and pin mechanism to lock the two sides of the zipper in place. They're used for predominantly in jackets. That's right. Coil zippers as well. I mean, I don't know how anybody could not love a coil zipper. They're just a fantastic invention in the world of zips. And when you think about how ubiquitous the zip is in our lives, to be without the coil zipper would be... Well, it's unthinkable, of course. And I suppose the final one... Oh, it really is difficult to choose. I say probably a reverse coil zipper, which is a variation of the coil zipper. The coil is on the reverse side of the zipper, and the sliding mechanism is engineered to work on the reverse side of the coil which is really a very exciting breakthrough. I remember when that first happened. My goodness. Do you remember, Trevor? I certainly do, Neil. We had a bottle of Esti Spumanti. I must have drank two glasses 
Oh, I had trouble with my zip that night. Well, remember, you're listening to Zippity Doo Certainly the most exhilarating discussion about zips that I've heard for a long, long time. Remember, if you want to call the show, the number is five, 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 five. We're going to take an advertising break. We'll be back in just a few zips of a lamb's tail. 